the church in which Martin Luther, the reformer, was baptized had three bells. And each of these bells had an inscription written on them. The first bell had the inscription, God help us. The second bell had this inscription, Mary, have mercy. And the third had, help us, Anna. What is significant, I think, about these inscriptions is that none of them refer to Christ. Prayer is made to God, which I think is true and reasonable. But also prayers offered up to Mary. Saints like Mary and Anna, but no prayer to Christ, who is alone the mediator between God and man. Certainly, the church in which Luther was baptized misses or missed the, in, the emphasis of the apostles, for they did not center on any other mediator than on Jesus Christ himself. In fact, the Apostle Paul could tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, I am determined to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. For the Apostle Paul, Christ was central. But not only was Christ central for Paul, he was central for the Apostles. And in the text that we read for the Apostle Peter in particular. Acts chapter 12 uh, Acts chapter 4 verse 12 is a part of a larger unit that runs from chapter 3. Peter and John, as we recall, went up to the temple at the hour of prayer, at the ninth hour. And they arrive at the gate beautiful and you recall there they met a man who was carried, a lame man, a man who was a beggar. And he was in this condition from some 40 years, well known in the temple. This is a man who did not and could not care for himself. And so he lived on handouts of the people who were passing. And when Peter and John arrived at the temple, he believed that he could receive money from them. This was his practice of asking arms from those who enter. We see it in chapter 3, verse 2. And so he asked Peter and John for money. And we read in verse 4 how Peter, fixing his eyes on him, said, look at us. And so he looked expectantly to receive something from them. But Peter said, silver and gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And right there and then, there was a miracle. For this crippled man got up and walked, and he made quite a stir. Because we recognize that he went into the temple, walking, leaping, and praising God. He made a racket in the place. And everybody could see that something miraculous had happened to this man. And people were amazed. And when they came to Peter and John, 
they began to instruct them about this miracle. And Peter responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? In verse 13, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our father, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the Just One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and kill the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, he made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. He declared to them Jesus. He says, listen, what has occurred here has not been done because of our power or because of our righteousness, but because of faith in Jesus Christ. But you will notice that in our passage, that Peter makes several references to Jesus Christ. He recognizes him as Jesus, a servant of God. In verse 13, he sees him in chapter 3, verse 14, as the Holy One, the one who is sinless, and the just one, the one whose ways are upright and straight. He calls him the Prince of Life. In verse 15, you killed the Prince of Life. He speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ, not only as the Prince of Life, but the one who is the greater prophet, the greater than Moses in chapter 3, verse 22. And here in chapter 4, when we read that having preached, the, the, the Sadducees and the priests came and they had these two disciples arrested, Peter and John. They were put in custody. And they were brought before to trial before the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious council in Israel, consisting of 70 men. And they were brought before the council. And they were asked to defend themselves. In verse 7, by what power or by what name have you done this? They asked him, but how dare you do this? How did you do this? And why did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Spirit of God, began to speak to them. And he tells them in verse 10, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. He speaks of Christ as the one who was crucified, as the one who was raised from the dead, and the one who heals the sick. He describes him in verse 11, as the stone which was rejected by the builders. I'm quoting Psalm 118 and verse 22. But in verse 12, we see something of the description of Christ and the centrality of Christ. These, as I've been trying to point out to you, are descriptions of Jesus. Peter is filled with Christ and with the centrality of Christ. But in verse 12, 
he refers to the centrality of Christ by defining or describing Christ as the exclusive Savior. He says, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For Peter, Christ was central. And in terms of the centrality of Christ, Christ he saw as the exclusive Savior. I want us to talk then a little about verse 12 and the centrality of Christ as the exclusive Savior. First and foremost, Christ is the exclusive Savior because he is the appointed Savior. Verse 12 divides into two parts. First, there is a declaration. There, for there is salvation in no one else. This is a categorical denial that salvation can be found in any other place or in any other person than in Jesus Christ. When we think of salvation, we need to recognize that salvation always refers to the rescue from danger. It is a rescue from a state of danger and be brought into a state of safety. Peter says, for there is salvation, for there is, nor is there salvation in any other. Salvation refers to a rescue. And in spiritual terms, it is a rescue from spiritual danger. It is a rescue from the defilement of sin, from the enslaving power of the devil. And more importantly, salvation is rescue from the condemning judgment of God. Nor is salvation, is there salvation in any other. Salvation then is to be rescued from God's wrath. Now, this is what Peter says. Nor is there salvation in any other. He, he first of all, lays down this categorical declaration. You can't find salvation in any other area or in any other person. Then the second part of verse 12, there's an explanation of this declaration. So he tells us salvation can be found in no one else. And then he tells us, secondly, why salvation cannot be found in anyone else. Here it is. Because... There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation is found nowhere else because God has not appointed anyone else under heaven whereby we must be saved than Jesus Christ. There is no other name. The name he's referring to is Christ and that is seen in the context. No other name given under heaven. And the term given is the perfect participle. It indicates that Christ has been appointed by God the Father to be Savior. That he has been appointed in the past. And that today he is the appointed Savior. And that in the future he continues to be the appointed Savior. He is Therefore, the exclusive Savior, because he is the God-appointed Savior. It's important that we understand this. It's, on, it's, it's crucial that we understand this. 
because we live in a world where we are told that there are many routes and many avenues to God. There are those who will tell you that salvation is to be found in other religions. There are those who will tell you that you can, by your good works, save yourselves. The problem I have with all of that is, there's only one person who can determine how we are to be saved. In other words, the reason we are in trouble is because we're in trouble with God. If God did not mind sin, we would have no problem. But it is precisely because we sin against God, and because God is angry with us for our sins, that only God himself can deliver us from his wrath. And the only means of deliverance, the only way he is appointed, is Christ. So it doesn't, ma it doesn't matter whether we appoint ourselves saviors, whether we latch on to saviors elsewhere or think ourselves to be saviors, as long as God has not admitted us as saviors, we can never save ourselves, apart from the fact that we are imperfect and cannot save ourselves. He has appointed Christ. He's the exclusive savior because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men. What an exclusive statement. Whereby we must be saved. Now this appointment of Christ as savior occurred in eternity past. It occurred in what theologians describe as in the covenant of redemption. And the covenant of redemption refers to that agreement between God the Father and the Son that the Son would save his people. According to the systematic theologian Charles Hodge, he says that this agreement between the Father and the Son that he may save his people includes these elements. First, that God undertook to prepare for his son a physical body, an uncontaminated body that is by sin. Luke 1.35. He was appointed secondly to the messianic office by giving him the spirit without measure. And that occurred at his baptism. Three, God undertook, thirdly, to support his son, the Savior, in the performance of his work and to deliver him from death and to enable him to destroy the dominion of Satan and to establish his kingdom. Fourth, God undertook that he would enable him as a reward for his work to send his Holy Spirit in order to build his church to guide it and to protect it and to instruct it. Fifth, God also undertook to give to his son a numberless seed as the reward of his work so that he will have a people from every nation and from every tribe and from every tongue. And sixth, that God undertook in this covenant of redemption that he would commit to the son all power in heaven and on earth for the government of the world and for the government of his church. This agreement took place in eternity past. And you know that this took place in eternity past because you just have to read the scriptures. As you read in Genesis, in chapter 3 and verse 15, in what is known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first pronouncement of the gospel, there we are told that God will put enmity between 
the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush his head. Long before Jesus came into the world, our Lord spoke to this couple in the garden that there was a coming, a seed, a deliverer who would defeat Satan. Thousands of years before the Lord came, the Lord also told Abraham that he would give him a seed, singular. It doesn't refer just to the nation of Israel, but indeed to Jesus Christ. And he showed to the prophets like David that there would come a servant of the Lord who would be bruised, who would be crushed for our sins. This Savior was appointed. When Jesus Christ came into the world, he says, I have come into the world to do thy will, O God. The will of God was given to him before he came into the world. And he came into the world, humbled himself to become a man, born of a woman, born of flesh and blood, born under the law, to bear the sin and our curse. He was the one who gave himself for our sins. He is the appointed of God, the servant of the Lord, the only Savior. So Christ is the exclusive Savior because he is the God-appointed Savior. Isaiah could say that he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's no other appointed Savior. But I want to suggest, secondly, that Jesus is the exclusive Savior, not merely because he is the appointed Savior, but because he is the effective Savior. There's a sense in which the healing of this lame man functions as an object lesson to the saving power of Christ. In other words, what Jesus did for this lame man in restoring him to health is a vivid physical picture of what he does in the spiritual realm. You see, we are those who are sick with sin and are incapable of healing ourselves. But the Lord is the one who heals us spiritually, who restores us to a right relationship with God, who rids us of the dominating power of sin and restores us in a right relationship with God. He's the one who brings wholeness and integration in our lives. He's the one who restores us to spiritual health. You see, there is, if there is to be salvation there must be satisfaction. And this is what Christ came to do. He is the appointed Savior. He is the effective Savior. Now in verse 12, Peter does not tell us how Christ actually saved. He just tells us that he alone is a Savior. But if you're reading in the context of chapter 4, you will see that Christ saves us particularly by his death and resurrection. He says, let it be known to you all 
and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. In other words, the means by which Christ becomes our effective Savior is by his death. It is by giving himself for us, by becoming a sacrifice for us. He effected salvation through his crucifixion. He is indeed the crucified and the risen Savior. Throughout the Old Testament, and in particular in the book of Leviticus, it demonstrates that there needed to be a sacrifice if we are to have a relationship with God. That was the purpose, the raisin debt of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. Because the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament taught the people of God that access to the presence of God was not a right, but a matter of grace. In other words, that no individual deserves God's presence. And that if any man is to enjoy fellowship with God, something must be done about their sin. And what must be done about sin for man to have a relationship is that there must be the spilling of blood. Death must occur. There must be a cost to our relationship with God. A price must be paid. Blood must be spilled. And the entire Old Testament system with the shedding of blood was meant to teach men that if we are to be reconciled to God, our sins must be paid for by a life given in death. But the problem with the Old Testament system is that even though they slaughtered thousands of animals and thousands of lambs, the blood of lambs and of goats and of bulls and of calves could never permanently erase our sins. You see, it is man who sinned and therefore it is man who must pay for sin. And that is why in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God in flesh, came with a physical body that he might give himself as the sacrificial lamb. You imagine the enthusiasm and the joy that came from John when he saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God. John was a man who was steeped in the Old Testament. He was like the saints of old, the Yanim, who are looking for the redemption of Israel. He's waiting for the Messiah. And one day he spots him and he says, yes, all the prophets and all that the types and shadows have been pointing to us arrived. Behold, the climactic Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You see, my dear friends, Jesus Christ is the effective Savior. Because he was crucified, he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And Hebrews 9.26 says, but now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he gave himself as a perfect lamb. 
a sinless, spotless lamb to God in order to pay for our sins. But because he's the son of God, his offering was mighty and powerful and acceptable to God. In the Testament, theology, B.B. Warfield, one of the great New Testament scholars of the past, said, New Testament theology is a theology of blood. Can't get away from it. Because we are saved by blood. That is, by the death of Christ. Paul refers to the blood of Christ in salvific terms some six times. He says in Romans 3.25 that Christ has been set forth as a propitiation by his blood. In Romans 5 verse 9, we are justified by his blood. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion of the blood of Christ? Ephesians 1.7, he says we have been redeemed through his blood. In Ephesians 2.13, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we have peace with God through the blood of his cross in Colossians 1.20. What I'm arguing then is that Christ alone is Savior. Because he alone paid the price for our salvation. By giving himself in death upon the cross as a payment to God. And his death was a complete payment. He paid the whole price. The full price for our sins because he took our curse and he paid by his death. And this, this sacrifice of Christ, which makes him our effective savior, produced results. First of all, it propitiated God. Propitiation simply means that the anger of God has been removed. The wrath of God is taken away. What did Christ's sacrifice accomplish? It accomplished propitiation, the removal of God's wrath. The problem that we have in this world is not with our neighbors. It's not with society. Our problem is with God. God is angry with the wicked. God is angry with sinners every day of their lives. You need to know that if you're an unbeliever. That God is not just neutral. He's angry. He's angry because you reject him. He's angry because you do not love him. He's angry because you put other things in his place. But when Christ died for his people, he removed God's anger. We're no longer under the wrath of God. But he did something positive. For not only did he remove the anger of God. Listen to what John says. Here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is love that caused the Lord Jesus Christ to come and to remove the anger of God. So, what did Christ do for us? Well, he removed God's anger. Secondly, he canceled our sins. He canceled our sins. He removed them all because he paid for them all. His sprinkled blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Because while Abel's blood is crying out for vengeance, the blood of Christ cries out for mercy. He's paid for our sins. What did Christ accomplish? Not only the removal of sin, he reconciles us to God. And Romans 5, 10 and 11 says, For if when we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We have peace with God. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be terrorized by the thought of God. There are, there are many billions of people in our world today who suppress the thought of God. I mean, they drown it out. They drown out the thought of God with music. Imagine, imagine people, we can't do anything today, you know, without music. Because, you see, we cannot allow ourselves to be quiet alone lest God somehow burst in on our thoughts. We distract ourselves because we cannot think about him. We don't want to think about him. We can't find God like a thief can't find a policeman. But you see, when Christ died, he, he reconciled us. He removed our animosity towards God so that God now is our father. We're children of his. We belong in his family. We don't have to fear that he's going to wipe us out. But we know he treats us tenderly as a father does a child because we belong to him because of what Christ has done. What did Christ accomplish, this effective Savior? He purifies our consciences. One of the greatest burdens you can ever bear is guilt. Guilt will make you waste away. Guilt will make you the most unhappy even if you have more money than anybody else. There with guilt is no remedy, no medication, no pill has been invented to deal with guilt. But there's one remedy, the blood of Christ. Because we are told in scripture that our Lord Jesus Christ, that his death purifies our consciences from dead works. <laughs> you see, the, the believer, the one who has come to trust in Christ, admits himself a sinner. But he knows that Christ has forgiven him, has paid for his sins. He knows that these things are of the past, that God no longer holds them against him, that God has forgotten them, that God has cast them behind his back. He has buried them in the depths of the sea. They are gone and gone forever. You see, the, the Spirit of God liberates our consciences so we may serve God. We now know the freedom, not only from sin, but from a defiled conscience because of Christ's death. What does he do for us? He sanctifies us by setting us apart for God's service. Hebrews 9.13 What does he do for us? He perfects those who have been sanctified. And when Hebrews talks about the perfecting of saints in Hebrews 10.14, it refers to the fact that he qualifies us to draw near to God. He perfects us in the sense that we are qualified to draw near to God and we are enabled to enjoy communion with him. All of these are done by the Lord in removing our sins, in pacifying the wrath of God, in drawing us near to God, in reconciling us with God in sanctifying us. All of this are the achievement of Jesus Christ. He's an effective savior. He is the appointed savior. He's an effective savior. But I must make one final observation about this savior of whom Peter speaks. Nor is there salvation in any other. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is the only Savior. Thus the exclusive Savior that God has given. But I want us to note that Christ is the exclusive Savior because he is the ever-living Savior. He's not only the exclusive Savior because he's the appointed Savior and because he is the effective Savior. He is the exclusive Savior because he is the ever-living Savior. I know that because if you turn to Hebrews 7.25, there the writer says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. There's a marvelous description of Jesus in Hebrews 7. He's comparing the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The priesthood that is derived from Melchizedek. And he's comparing it to the Levitical priests. And he tells us Jesus Christ comes from the line of Melchizedek. And that Jesus Christ as the high priest is superior to the Levitical priests. And the fundamental reason why he is greater than any other priest, it is because he has the power of an endless life. He has the power of an indestructible life. The problem with human priests is that they continued in office for a while. They could bring your sins before God. They could ask God for forgiveness. They could offer up sacrifices for you. And there would be, in some sense, a reprieve. Because cultically, they could remove your sins so you could go and worship. They never perfectly removed them, but you had, you had the ability to worship God. But the Levitical priests, they had one problem. They were mortals. And they died. And so there was a continual changing of office. Until Christ has come, who is our high priest, our great high priest. Who has an indestructible life. So that as long as eternity lasts, we have a Savior who will last forever. We need a Savior who not only rescues us and then himself dies and remains dead. We need a living Savior. We need a Savior who will last unto eternity. We need a Savior always. And in Christ we have a living Savior who has an indestructible life. He continues forever. The one then who is our Savior was crucified, Peter says. But God raised him from the dead. One Savior who lives forever and ever. Throughout eternity, throughout time, he lives. And the stone that was rejected by the builders, he was seen as of no account. Tossed out by the Jews. But God has made him to be the chief cornerstone. The most important piece of this edifice of salvation. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name Jesus. The exclusive savior. Who is the appointed savior. The one who is the effective savior. Who by his blood redeemed us from our sins. And he is the ever-living Savior who is able to save us completely. 
Anyone who draws near to God through him is able to save them completely because he lives. Is your Savior living? Because he lives forever to make intercession for them. Let me make a few observations and conclude. Christ this evening is offered to you as the only Savior. There is no other name under heaven given by God by which you must be saved. If you are to be saved, you must admit you have a problem. No man can never be saved unless they admit that they themselves are sinners. You must be willing to go to God and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. You can never be saved if you think that you are already safe. But you must see that you are in peril and in danger of the fire of hell. You must know that God is angry with you. But you must also know that there is a means, a reprieve, a release in and through Jesus Christ. Secondly, you must abandon any attempt to save yourself by your own effort. Because the best you can do is but filthy rags in the sight of God. You must abandon your works. This is the reason, for instance, why the Jews would not reject Christ. Because they, they thought they were doing well on their own. They rejected the righteousness of God as a gift for their own work righteousness. And Paul complains about that in Romans chapter 10. You must therefore renounce every effort of seeking to enter heaven by your own means. Then what must you do? You must embrace Christ as your savior, as your substitute, as your surety, as your guarantor. The one who has provided salvation, who has taken your punishment, who has paid for your sins. It is only by believing in him, it is only by trusting in him that you are saved. But you must know that he's offered to you today. And this new year, you can truly be in a celebratory mood. You can truly know joy and happiness if you close with Christ. If you embrace him, if you take him to be your savior. He's a sufficient savior. He's the effective savior. But it needs to be also considered that Christ is not only offered as the only savior. We must also consider that Christ as the only savior is not a theological construct to be dissected and debated, but a person to know and love. You see, it is possible when we come to the communion table and when we attend worship Sunday after Sunday to talk about Christ and what he has done. And Christ becomes a subject of discussion. It's a theological, academic, intellectual exercise. We think through the ramifications of what he did. We think through the metaphysics of him coming to the world and becoming man and dying. And we have our own little compartments where we package our theology in neat categories. But Christ is a subject to be studied and not a person to be loved. And my friends, when we think of Christ the Savior who died for us, we must know him as a person, a living person, and we must love him. 
We must enter into a relationship with him. Listen, the Apostle Paul says, I determined to nothing, to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I, I want to know him, he says to the Philippians. I want to know him. I want to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings and be made conformable to his death. And the Christ who died for us must be the pursuit of our lives. To get to know him. To spend time in prayer and reflection with him. To live for his glory. I want to know him. We must seek an intimacy with Christ that goes beyond the cerebral and the intellectual that affects our lives and our conduct. I want to know him. What effect does Christ, the only Savior, the one who died for you, what effect does he have on you? Does he determine how you live? May Christ, the Savior, not just be an idea, but a living person in a living relationship. And because Christ is the only Savior who suffered for us, it means that we must be willing to suffer for him. We must be willing to crucify all the lust of our flesh, to kill every sin, because he was killed for us. We must be willing to take the shame and the opposition that comes from our colleagues and our family members because there is no other savior anywhere else in the universe than Christ. And there is no other who loved us and gave himself for us. We must be prepared to have people ridicule and laugh at us and even our families not talk with us and abandon us because of Christ. We must, in short, be willing to die for him. John Lambert was a pastor in England in 1523. He was accused of heresy by the clergy. And he was accused of heresy because he dissented from the Roman Catholic dogma that the mass, the bread and the wine, contained the real presence of Christ. Throughout the history of the church, we believe that the Lord's table is representative, is symbolic. The bread is referring to the body of Christ and the cup to the blood of Christ. But it is a picture of his sacrifice. Whereas Roman Catholic dogma was that it was the real presence of Christ that was there in the bread and in the wine. And so Lambert dissented. He could not agree with that position. And he was brought to trial before the very king of the time. And when Lambert tried to explain his position, the king cut him short. He said to Lambert, just answer the question. Do you renounce your views or not? And Lambert said, I, I cannot renounce my views. And so he was condemned for heresy to be burnt at the stake. On the morning of his death, he had breakfast and he prayed with the guards and they brought him out in the square, they piled logs around his feet and piled it around his entire body and as the fire engulfed him, 
in the midst of this burning pyre, there comes a hand with a finger on fire. And the words were heard, none but Christ, none but Christ. I say to you, my friends, because Jesus Christ is the only Savior, the only one who can deliver us from eternal death. We too must utter these words in our lives, none but Christ, none but Christ.